The newsroom has been exposed. We are part of the very system protesters across the nation and world are pushing back against. We have run police mugshots full of black and brown faces, knowing they drive paid views. We have disproportionately cast black and brown folks as criminals, victims. Now news media is caught up short, like, oh, how many black producers do we have? Oh, how many brown people actually make a difference in terms of assigning reporters to particular ideas that are critical? We're seeing unprecedented changes across news outlets because of it. We're one of the newsrooms that finally decided, you know, we will capitalize the letter B. Black voices seem to have some power right now. I would just make sure that, you know, as a black journalist in a newsroom, that if they're going to give you the opportunity to speak in this moment, that they continue to give you the opportunity to speak beyond this moment. This is Beyond the Newsroom. I'm Renata Sago. And I'm Crystal Chavez. In our last episode, we talked about the ways in which black and brown journalists in majority white newsrooms have been using their voices to call out the racism they deal with. Now we're taking the conversation to a place that's not getting a lot of coverage, the Black-owned newsroom, where Black journalists dictate coverage. There are more than 400 Black-owned newspapers and broadcasters in this country. This episode is about how this racial reckoning, so to speak, is affecting some of the Black press. You got your internet up, C? Yes, I do. Okay. My Wi-Fi is up. And running. All right. I've opened up Google. Where do I go? Okay. Go to the OklahomaEagle.net. Okay. So I'm there. I see the big eagle at the top of the page. And I'm going to scroll down. I see an editorial. Hashtag let the woke vote. The Oklahoma Eagle editorial. Uneasy reform, U.S. opposition, and old wounds. Going on down, see some COVID-19 coverage. Okay, so this is the website of the Oklahoma Eagle. It's one of the oldest African-American family-owned newspapers in this country. The paper was started in 1921. Back then, Tulsa was home to the thriving Black business district known as Black Wall Street. The Oklahoma Eagle was created as a voice of the black community, for the black community, by the black community. And it's really, if you think about it, major for this newspaper to have a digital presence in 2020. When we talk about this racial reckoning in today's newsrooms, that's really small stuff compared to what this paper has seen. It survived a racial massacre. Tell us what happened there. It was Memorial Day weekend, 1921. A white mob descended upon Black Wall Street. It was the wealthiest black business district in the country at the time. The white mob destroyed the district, killing black people who owned and relied on the businesses there. To this day, it's unclear just how many black people were killed. The white mob attacked with guns. They had bombs. Some records show they orchestrated the attack from private aircrafts. The black paper at the time was the Tulsa Star. Its office was bombed, and it was later replaced by the Oklahoma Eagle. Back then, the Eagle came out once a week, and today it still does. In fact, it has never missed a week since that massacre. Now, today, about five people work to get the paper out, mostly family. There's the publisher, who's 
80 years old. His name is James Goodwin. His father bought the paper back in 1936. There's Goodwin's daughter. She's the editor of the paper. She also handles ads. Then there's Goodwin's son, who's running for local office, and Goodwin's dog, who offers moral support. I talked to Fred Jones, who's an honorary member of the Goodwin family. He handles the paper's website. He started doing that a couple of years ago. And that sounds huge for a paper that's been here since the 20s. Yeah. Now reaching more people where we spend a lot of time, especially during quarantine. Right, right. I mean, it really is. That's actually how I was able to find out about the paper through his website. Mr. Jones says they've gotten clicks from across the world in the past two years, but it was sort of difficult transitioning from getting a physical paper every week to adding on a website and keeping that content up. But it was trial and error in the beginning uh, because you're just trying to uh, learn the heartbeat of a community and then, you know, um, try to still be a community webpage, but knowing that, you know, advertisers also look at analytics. Um, so we needed that national influence, that national push, those clicks from across the United States. Interesting. So they've historically been a local outlet, but this digital aggregation and such has made them national. Yeah, some of the content on the website is locally produced and original and has been published in the physical paper. Then some of the stories are online only. And I'm also looking around here and seeing stories pulled from other sites like the Huffington Post and even from some TV stations. Um, looks like there really is just a blend and they are creating this site with audience in mind. Yeah, part of it is to keep this website populated with stories that are relevant to the local black community and the larger black community. This has always been the purpose of this paper to be a voice of black people. It was born out of necessity and it was successful at that. It's been successful at that. Fred Jones says back in the day, the paper had around eight ad execs managing ads from black businesses in Oklahoma. The newsroom was huge. It was a driving force, even all the way up to the 70s and the early 80s. Uh, the newspaper had a commanding force and a voice. But as the communities diversified, we're spread out now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hearing him say diversified and spread out now. And I'm thinking about Austin, Texas and what happened there. Uh, gentrification on the east side, which forced black people out of their homes into Pflugerville and, and other suburbs. Is that what happened there? This is part of what happened. Some black people moved out of Tulsa completely for other opportunities. Some people were forced out of certain areas due to gentrification. The city makeup changed. You've got some black areas that are now white or Latino. And, and so that's affected the physical newspaper's distribution and reach. That makes the website just that much of a bigger deal. Right, it is. But the thing is, keeping up a website is not easy. You need enough content that's going to attract advertisers. And that's something Fred Jones says has been difficult. Advertisers have so many options for where to put their money these days. So the Oklahoma Eagle may be posting articles about black people by the Huffington Post, but at the same time, the reality is that the Oklahoma Eagle is competing with the Huffington Post for ads. This is part of what can make it tough for black-owned papers to stay afloat, this competition with larger white outlets. And so that's why the analytics are so important because as we continue to reach more, we can continue to demand more and sustain ourselves financially as a newspaper. Speaking of analytics, 
The paper got more attention than it ever has back in June without having to write an article, without having to send a sponsorship letter or anything. The news that President Trump would be holding a campaign rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth put the eagle on an even bigger map. So we begin, Oklahoma, we begin. Thank you, Oklahoma. And thank you to Vice President Mike Pence. We begin, we begin our campaign. Yet he wanted to hold his rally, the place where this massacre happened. And, and why the hell did he think it was appropriate to gather a mostly white audience on this historic day? He was doing that thing he does appealing to white supremacists in his yeah. base, obviously. If you look at the articles on the Eagles website from around that time, you'll see an article that reads, something chaotic this way comes. The Trump campaign ended up moving its rally from Juneteenth to June 20th, but that didn't change how much attention the Eagles still got. I started getting emails from uh, CNN Paris, and, you know, uh, MSNBC, and uh, just uh, even NPR. We couldn't understand because, you know, Oklahoma only has seven delegates um, that, you know, vote for the president after, you know, everybody votes here. But as the media uh, teams came together, uh, you know, we just realized that this was uh, the perfect storm. And if we wrote it out, we would come out of this uh, with connections such as yourself um, across the country. What the Trump rally did. What all these phone calls and emails from the international media did was bring attention to the Oklahoma Eagle as an institution, as, as a voice for black people that it was created to be. At the same time, it brought attention to Black Wall Street and the Tulsa Race Massacre. Even Fred Jones himself was able to share more about his own story. His grandmother had a bread shop on Black Wall Street and his great aunt was one of the last survivors of the massacre. Wow. Yeah, so inadvertently, this ended up schooling many on Black history, history they likely didn't read about in public schools in history class or even college. Oh, my goodness. No, no. And that and the thing about it is this paper holds so much history that Fred Jones told me he wasn't taught growing up in Tulsa. And he's a 56 year old man. I mean, they've got volumes upon volumes of old editions of the paper from the 20s and 30s and 40s. And all of this is history that they plan to digitize in order to keep more people educated. Gosh, I really hope a university, museum, or someone just steps up to save and, and digitize that history and yeah, do that work. They've actually begun to partner with the local university there to make that happen. And the paper itself, in the midst of this moment that we're in, which is a continuation of the civil rights movement, is seriously thinking about how to even do journalism differently. You know, in white newsrooms, you might see more journalists looking for official statements from the police or public officials. I know. And just like think about who those are. Like think about the quacks we've seen on city council just because they got like 500 <laughs> friends to vote for them. Bam, you're a constable. <laughs> and, like editors and news directors value their voice. That's the like official statement in your story. <laughs> <laughs> Quacks. These quacks. You know you've seen them on those city council meetings you have to watch for 45 minutes just to find out a vote on one item. <laughs> yeah, so Fred Jones is all about just 
exposing these people, no matter what their titles are. It's made more people feel like, hey, it's okay for me to come out and be racist. Well, you know, I'm not okay with you calling me a nigga today and telling me you're sorry tomorrow. You know, so, you know, and that happened so much back then, it didn't make any sense. But thank God everybody's got a phone now. You know, I tell everybody, they say, man, when you gonna put something in the paper? I say, man, just open up your phone and send me some news. You know, because everybody is a journalist, photojournalist now. Everybody's a video journalist. So I'm like, you know, just like we saw George Floyd because somebody recorded it. If you see some crap, hit the button. And there's another layer here, too. Black-owned papers like the Oklahoma Eagle don't always get recognition for what they've been doing all these years. Get all those decades. I mean, NPR fucking came about in the 70s, early 70s. Right. And the Eagle was like 50 years old by then. You know, excuse me for getting on my soapbox, but it's really important to know and understand this history. People shit on the community paper sometimes. They do. I don't know why. I don't know why. Especially like journalists from institutional papers. I don't understand why. It's like you get your start at the community paper. And then you go off to work for the so-called mainstream only to have your voice stifled. I mean, it's obviously a sign of success to cross over. Sure, but like success defined by who? Well, sometimes it's black people ourselves. I mean, okay, here's one example. The NAACP came under fire back in May. They held a panel called Black Media Speaks. The panel included the president of NABJ. The panel also had some well-known black journalists. They talked about the state of black-owned papers without actually including a voice from these papers. So get this, the panel says something along the lines of black-owned papers are nearly dead. Wow. And so some of the members of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, which represents more than 200 of these black-owned papers, were upset. And it's not just the papers or the digital media companies. Like, what about Black-owned broadcasters? Right. There are about 220 Black-owned broadcasters in this country. And there's a lobbying group in D.C. that represents most of them. It's called the National Association of Black-Owned Broadcasters, NABOB. It started in 1976, and James Winston has been the president since 1982. I talked to him and he had a lot to say about the rise and gradual fall of black owned radio and TV. The sad reality is that even at our peak, when we had 250 radio stations, there were 11,000 radio stations in the United States. So we were like 2% at our peak. We were 2% of the owners. Now we're down to like 1.5%. So it's, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate situation that our best that when we had the most positive policies in place, that we were still underrepresented. And now we're just woefully underrepresented in ownership. Mr. Winston began working for the FCC back in 1978. That was when the agency started a policy that is in many ways responsible for the state of black and brown-owned broadcasting today. And, and tell me more about that policy. So it's called the Minority Ownership Policy. It gave tax breaks to people who sold their stations to minorities. From 1978, when this policy took effect, to 1995, when it ended, we saw the number of Black-owned radio stations go from 30 to 250, and the number of Black-owned TV stations go from 0 to 25. So 
you know, it was, it was proven that the policy worked to some extent, but now the numbers are down. And people might not even know the numbers are down because you can look at media, right. consume it, yep. and think it's Black-owned too. But, like, it's an illusion because just who is, is front-facing, who's in front of the camera. You know, take iHeartMedia, for example. They're one of the biggest distributors of Black programming. You know, our, our podcast is actually on iHeartMedia, um, by the way. Uh, Catch it there. <laughs> but iHeartMedia <laughs> but iHeartMedia is not black or brown owned. You know, then there's BET, same situation. So these these distributors, they are they're distributing black programming, mm-hmm. but the the black owners are not there. Mr. Winston's advocating on a legislative level to see that change. At the end of the day, the black community cannot solely rely upon companies that we don't own. And we have to have a bigger voice to be to be adequately represented in the broadcast media. So really this reckoning is about recognizing the power of ownership. Yeah. Honestly, Rhonda, you've helped me realize that. Like I've sometimes wanted to try to change existing white news outlets. But now I'm really leaning towards supporting black and brown outlets, and I need to do more research about who they are, to be honest, the historical ones and the startups. And I want to put my money there. And I want to tell young journalists that I mentor to go there. Why keep trying to change what hasn't changed for decades? I mean, that's literally the definition of insanity. Well, I think you're already crazy. Lord. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, but we can talk about the civil rights movement and equality and people feeling like their voices should be represented by these white-owned institutions. That's the thing. It's like people will say, oh, well, we're part of your audience, therefore you should represent us. You know, we consume you, therefore you should represent us. That's that's the narrative. But what I'm seeing here is that there are Black-owned digital media companies within this so-called racial reckoning that are completely unbothered by it because they never ask these places for permission to speak. They just created their own spaces for themselves, and they're thriving right now. They're sharing stories about the nuances of Black identity. They're getting respect for it. They're building their audiences up. These are companies like Blavity and The Root and Sugarcane Magazine. Oh, my goodness. This There's this video uh, one of them posted, and it's so cute and so innocent. I've just been playing it on repeat. Because it just makes me smile. And I'm like, you would never see this anywhere else but through a Black-owned outlet. It's the little boy and his sister. The little boy is saying if someone messes with his sister, he's going to beat them up. There's just something so universal and innocent about these Black kids. Yeah, you sent me that. And I was hitting repeat, too, because it does. It's so cute. It's so freaking cute. And that sibling love, I can't take it. I just love it. They're not criminals. Nothing bad has happened to them. They're just dancing. It warms your heart. It warms your damn heart. So when we think about white-owned media, some of these mainstream outlets find content 
to speak to blacks or Latinos. And that's what keeps the audiences watching or listening. They'll have, you know, like a podcast or two that just really does have a black and brown audience in mind. And they offer just enough content to keep you listening and donating. Right. And when that happens, it's generally within the context of race. Like, okay, let's do this series about race in our community. Let's let's make this reporter the race reporter or or this person can be the the host, our token host. You know, F that. Yeah, like just speak about race. I mean, that's tokenism. Race is a part of every beat, health, environment, business. You know, it shouldn't be broken out like that. And that's like the ideal. I don't know when or if we'll ever see that but let's continue this conversation what are you listening to what are you our inbox is open at doyouhoney at gmail.com and before we leave I just want to say that the publisher of the Oklahoma Eagle Mr. Goodwin the 80 year old he had me in tears on the phone we talked he said he believed in our work and that is very important he opened up about all the obstacles the eagle has been through and the one thing that's kept it going is this mission that's to let people's voices be heard renata i'm adding them to my news digest thanks for bringing their voice forward and into this podcast i hope you too add them to your news digest i'm crystal chavez and i'm renata sago peace <laughs>